Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello. Hello and welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblo. Welcome one, welcome all. Is that something? Oh, I don't know. We're, yeah, like a little, the bugle call. Uh, yeah. No, no trumpet. No trumpet, a trumpet. The a bugle trumpet. is like camp counselors. Mm-hmm. Like. like wake up like, in the morning, yes. time to go to the bum, mess bum, hall. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah. Did yes. you ever go to sleepaway camp? Um, I did. I went to like a pseudo military camp. Oh. I did. And what? yeah. Yeah, what does that mean? Uh, like Cadet Kelly? Uh, a kind, sort of. Um, what a great movie, though. But no, it was like it was called like Dare Camp, I think. Um, like, like, like Dare, like drugs. drug edu. Does Dare no, stand no. for something? Yeah. What? Uh, D- drug ed- and education. What's A and R? Drug aversion. <laughs> I like yeah, literally, I, I couldn't even tell you, but it's keeping kids off of drugs. Yes. So yeah. if you are in America and you had like D.A.R.E. education, it was like sponsored by D.A.R.E., but we like mm. went away and slept on some like old college campus and there was like um, National Guard and like other military members like making us do drills and it was just like not a, it was not a fun experience. Did you okay. go to sleepaway camp? I did. I went to... It was a big thing in my town to go to this camp. It was like in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, and it was called International Sports Training Camp, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Very creative name. I know, and not my scene at all, but it was all about sports, and it was like you had a cabin, and you slept in a cabin. They would like try to pair you with kids from your hometown or like kids that you knew so that you weren't alone so like i was in a cabin Mm. with like a bunch of people from my hometown that i didn't like that seems yeah i was gonna say that seems worse i'd rather almost be with i'd rather reinvent myself with a bunch of literally i want strangers right i want to be like a the cool kid at camp right like like parent trap style like brand new yeah right 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 go fencing and do all these things and like Mm -hmm. they would have like you know you would and all of the counselors were international. So they were like counselors from oh. like Australia or like England or like mm-hmm. Ireland or whatever. Just all these like, cool older teen counselors. And we did all of these things where you would like, I don't know, do like trust falls and play soccer and go mountain biking and go swimming mm. and go, you like jump off a thing into the yeah. water. Like it was just like Ooh. a whole, it was like the summer camp experience. <gasps> and like each cabin would compete the week that you were there to be like the cabin of the week. And so it was like people like how, you know, you'd like have to like do chants as you were walking from like oh, one building to another. And it was like really yeah. like brouhaha. Uh-huh. But yeah, I went, fun. I went to that. And then on the way home, every time, to- every summer we would come back um, on the way home, we would stop and buy fireworks because fireworks oh, were illegal in were New Jersey. Were illegal in New Jersey. So we would have to buy them in Pennsylvania at Phantom Fireworks. Oh, like yes. a giant warehouse. And then we would smuggle them back to New Jersey <laughs> in black trash bags, hoping that we didn't get pulled over. Like not that serious, but that's so funny. No, yeah, but we fireworks. made it like a smuggle thing. So fun. Fun mm-hmm. childhood memories. Um, fireworks are now legal in New Jersey. But only like some, some of them. them at least. To the... But to the point where I saw this the other day, someone in like an old, like a 
abandoned like um supermarket parking lot like a Mm -hmm. i shouldn't say abandoned but it was like a supermarket chain we had near us that closed and nothing ever Mm -hmm. filled its place so in that parking lot there was just like a pop-up uh like firework store essentially it was just a bunch of folks with like easy ups um like tents just like selling fireworks so things have changed since your camp smuggling firework yeah (laughs) wow that's a little sad kids won't get to understand the the thrill of the thrill smuggling fireworks across state lines yeah of watching your parents commit a crime (laughs) right one time we were (laughs) one time we had like another family over to my mom's house and we are like my the house i grew up in and all the kids were playing with sparklers Mm. and one of the kids had thrown the sparkler while it was still going off close to the house and it fell into like a little patch of grass like it was tall grass so i couldn't see the actual sparkler itself but all i could see was the the light of the sparkler and it was Mm -hmm. close enough to the house that i thought the house caught on fire so i went running and screaming being like the house is on fire someone (laughs) set the house on fire and everybody panicked and all the adults got up and ran and then it was just a sparkler in the grass and nothing was on fire and it just like was a i mean it still could have been a big thing but it wasn't (laughs) but it wasn't yeah and i panicked and i screamed fire fire like the one thing you're not supposed to do unless there's a fire but yeah i feel like sparklers have a pretty short like half-life you know like Mm -hmm. it's a pretty quick thing they'll burn out pretty fast right but you could your fingers could get scorched Uh, sure Uh, yeah but i've also like burned my hands to the point of having like second degree burns from pizza rolls so like it's just a risk that we take that is different i would yeah That was another, the same time I was in military camp is when I burned my hands on pizza rolls, both hands on a tray of pizza rolls. What were you, what were you doing? Just grabbing the pizza rolls <laughs> or you grabbed the pan? So so I grabbed the pan with, instead of a um, an oven mitt, um, uh-huh. I just had like a dish towel. And so okay, well, I grabbed, well, yeah, so I thought it would be enough, but mm-hmm. um, I really like a little crisp on my pizza rolls. Mm-hmm. So I guess it was a little too hot. And I, um, I was in middle school. And uh-huh. so I took the tray out of the oven and it was too hot for the hand with the dish mm-hmm. towel. So like just, I guess I, on a reflex, I grabbed it with the other hand, which didn't have oh anything. <laughs> so I burned both of them. My mom, bless her soul, she's alive. <laughs> she, this, I like am very upset that this happened, but I know she had my best interest in heart at, at heart. But she like, wrapped completely wrapped both of my hands because they were so burned so i had like mitts and i went into school the next day and they were taking like candid shots of everyone for like the yearbook no yes no i swear it's this is real mrs mrs manzo um our religion teacher was going around taking photos on her digital camera for the yearbook mm-hmm. and i just had like two straight up like gauze wrapped hands yeah and they were like pretty thick is it in thick the yearbook mitts. There's a picture, I think, of me with the mitts in the yearbook. Mm-hmm. And then also the other picture that they have of me is um, in, like, my Annie costume from the school play. Oh, so wow. both pretty unflattering. Wow. And those are forever in your yearbook. They are. But how many people are going to see my eighth grade yearbook, really? Let's post it on Instagram, at Historically Really, for everyone to see. No. But you sounded like you had a very fun camp um, Well, I was just going to say it's really funny because you were burning your hands on 
pizza rolls and I was seeing my camp counselors butts when they were in the shower <gasps> and like really oh. finding my my sexual awakening. Yes. At you camp. know what? I think I really do think that's what camp is for. Yeah. Camp is for like discovering yourself sexually. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? Teenage Australian boys. You know, I was like 12 and I was just like older Australian boys. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, I'm in love. I was in heaven. And then I had to go do sports and I was like, well, I'll sit on the sidelines and make like friendship bracelets. Right. Yeah. But for the camp counselors, I'll be like the funny class clown of this crew. Yes. Yes, Like, definitely. love me and validate me for who I am, which is not a sports player. Yeah, exactly. It's your job to make me feel supported in this environment, mm-hmm. even though I don't want to be here. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't. And I made that very clear. Yeah, I do really feel like based on, like, the movies I watched growing up, I think, and then, like, being at camp, like, you just want, like, a camp counselor, like, mm-hmm. little relationship experience, you know? Totally. It's Absolutely. just, like, that's what camp is. Re- camp, that's yeah. what it is. Sorry to break it to you. All right. Oh, I loved talking about camps today. Me too. How fun. I, I hope maybe, maybe some of you are camp counselors right now. Ooh, tell us your stories. Yes. I want to hear about your camp counselor stories. Yes. Or oh, Ooh. if you're oh. if you are interested in sending us a listener story and it has yes. to do with discovering your sexuality at camp. <gasps> yes. Look at that, because yes. we know that's what everyone's doing at camp. So 1, share your story if you've got a fun camp story. Yeah, absolutely. Or, an, or it doesn't have to be at camp either. We're just really into camp right now. <laughs> right, right. Send us your personal listener stories to our email at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com, or you can DM us on Instagram at historicallyreally. And while we're kind of in this historically really good friends corner mode, second thing, By the time this episode comes out, our giveaway will still be happening. You have two Mm -hmm. days to enter. We have a few rules. You can see them in our Instagram post, but go to our Instagram at Historically Really. Enter into our giveaway to win one of two queer historical books, and we'll be drawing winners on the 22nd, which is like two days from now. Yeah, good luck. Go enter. Yes, please do. Very nice. All right. So with that done... Should we? I think we should get started. I am so excited to talk about my story today. So good. I am going to be talking about the glorious story of the disco era. Oh, so ready, Rachel. Finally, so ready. Oh my god, this is like one of the topics that you've been begging to talk about since (laughs) we started this podcast, and then you did Sylvester, and you wanted to do disco then. Oh, I'm I'm more than ready. So yeah, I've been wanting to literally talk about disco since the inception of this podcast. Really before that, but I didn't have a reason to like it's not like a no party outlet. conversation. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have I didn't have a platform to talk about disco, right. the rise and fall, the alpha and the omega of disco. But Ooh, oh my god. Now we have the podcast. I'd really like to talk about it. And also the anniversary, so to speak, of Disco mm-hmm. Demolition Night has just passed on July 12th so I thought it was kind of a good time that was my avenue into talking about this topic it was great Um, smooth yeah thank you the sources that I use to weave this wonderful tale today include the you're wrong about podcast episode titled disco demolition night the whole reason I wanted to talk about this also the black history of disco by Ashley Littlefield for EDM identity 
Why Disco Should Be Taken Seriously by Arwa Haider for the BBC. A Vice article entitled Dance Pride, The Gay Origins of Dance Music by Joshua Glazer. Disco and Gay Culture in the 1970s by Manya Johnston Ramirez. And then finally, an NPR article entitled July 12th, 1979, The Night Disco Died or Didn't by Derek hmm. John. Yes. Well, Miss Olivia, hang in there. Yeah. So seriously. with all those sources, it's kind of clear what I'm talking about. And I'm sure many of us are like at least somewhat familiar with disco. But we're kind of going to do a brief overview of the origins of disco all the way through its supposed demolition and then kind of where we are now with the all lovely right. disco music. Let's do it. So the first, and let me know if this surprises you, but I'm going to take it all the way back to the early 1800s. Does that number surprise you? Yeah, very much so. I know. What are we it's doing a- in the 1800s? great question you're such a good person to talk to okay thank you so there are actually some accounts that detail the first origins of one of disco's most famous pieces the disco ball that it may have actually appeared in the early 1800s and was used in like dance halls and then as we kind of progressed into like dance clubs throughout that time, all the way until the 1920s. And then it kind of sort of disappears um, and then gets resurrected again in the 60s. So that's kind Hmm. of the earliest remnant of like disco adjacent objects we have. It's like the early 1800s. And so through the 1920s, like imagine Great Gatsby and like Art Deco, but also with a disco Disco ball. ball. Oh, I love it. Right? So like all that gold, but then a disco ball. Amazing. So then that's kind of the object that we have information on. But in the early 1900s, marginalized communities, specifically Black, Latinx, and queer communities, created what were at the time called, quote, rent parties, which took advantage of available industrial spaces in cities like New York Mm. and Philadelphia, where there was kind of like this fun loft space that was Mm -hmm. safe and people were able to gather there and listen to music so through those roots of like these rent parties we see that within the origins of disco it was never really a movement about music so i think a lot of us Mm -hmm. now hear disco and we think about certain music or artists but the impact of disco is really not totally about the music it's also about the place the location that created like a stigma-free environment, a private space where like the hardships, the challenges of what people were facing on the outside of that space, just even for a brief moment, didn't really matter when they were in what was called from the French uh, discotheque. They're becoming especially more popular in the 1960s. So The meaning of discotheque essentially was just synonymous amongst queer people and people of color as an underground club scene, pretty much. So it wasn't like if we think about a club now, it's basically like everybody, a club has a name. It's it's like a building owned by a person. It's sponsored. It's advertised. Here, a discotheque wasn't yet synonymous with like a club that was well known and like sponsored. It's more of a general idea of a building or event, whereas a club is a specific place. Right, exactly. And so it's like, it was all, this was all still kind of an underground culture. Mm -hmm. 
So responding in the Vice article I mentioned, Manuel Garcia says, quote, nobody is really denying that disco, in this case talking about disco music, emerged out of queer nightlife, but somehow queer folks slip out of the established narrative and disappear, unquote. Mm. So that's really what I want to focus on with these origins is recognizing the involvement and really the creation that queer people had in the disco movement. Mm -hmm. So the rise in popularity of the safe discotheque spaces came about likely because of all the kind of shit going on in the 60s and 70s, which mm-hmm. we've talked about in previous episodes, and those things sort of developing a need for queer people and people of color to find a place for self-expression because they didn't really have that anywhere else or a space that was safe and could include self-expression but wasn't for activism or other kinds of organizing, right? So there was a lot of movements happening. People were gathering. But while disco was closely associated with the political movements at the time, it was a space where people could just have fun and didn't have to be Mm -hmm. like, we're have to organize today for our right to live. Right. So this, again, was kind of all happening during the tense lead up and also then the aftermath of the Stonewall riots. So Stonewall, as we've talked about before, happens in 1969. So everything I'm talking about mainly takes place from 1961 through like 1979. So we can kind of see the transition of before Stonewall happens, including some of the things we've mentioned that happened during those times, and then after Stonewall happens. You're able to very much see this shift when you look at, quote, the contrast between the shadowy, almost quarantined quality of homosexual culture in the years before disco, and then it's in-your-face visibility at the height of the mirrorball mania, unquote. So that's kind of the transition I was thinking about. When we maybe associate disco, we think about like Studio 54 and stuff. Right. That was on the tail end of the disco movement when Mm. the queer aspects of it became far more visible and may have likely played a part in the disco demolition, really. Mm -hmm. So still in the early years of disco, so in the 60s, before disco music was a recognizable genre, so we're still kind of talking about disco techs as like this place or this concept, People in Northeastern cities would sort of create these makeshift clubs. For example, in Philly, they started off as what I would describe as like a frat house party, but like more fun and probably safer, where it was like whoever had space in a house or if there was like a gathering center, that people would just kind of pack in there and then there would be one person like DJing in a corner, you know, like it wasn't super organized. It was just like, to me, that feels like going to like a college party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then eventually they upgraded from those types of environments to larger, those like industrial spaces. A warehouse party. Yes, exactly. So whether they were like being, they were unused warehouses or someone owned them or worked there, whatever the case Mm -hmm. may be, they kind of moved to those settings. And actually in Manhattan, people would get together occasionally, like with some friends, with their pals. And I guess sort of ingeniously, I don't know how this would work though. They would break the street lamps and then use like the wires from the street lamps and wire them to speakers and then like play music out of the street lamps and have like illegal park dance parties. What? I know. I know. How does that even work? 
I have no idea. So it's like they were hot wiring. Like, like, like they were taking the, the power. They were yes. taking the electricity from the street lamps and wiring, like powering their speakers because portable speakers are probably not really a thing. Right, around. right. Okay. Okay. Oh God. Yes. So like they're not carrying like boom boxes, right? Like they have like literal speakers. But who, f- who figures that out? I have no idea. Like that's what I mean. It's so smart and I'm just yeah. like, what? Is there a better the, option? I don't in know. The sake of, in the sake of having a party. Yes. All to just be like, all right, let's party in the park today. Like, let's have you a good time. A noble cause. I get it. <laughs> truly, truly. So aside from this demand to have like actual spaces for queer people and queer people of color to gather rather than mm-hmm. like abandoned warehouses or like breaking right. street lamps. So there was some supply of places, but there was still more of a demand for them. There was mainly a demand for actual dance music, which is kind of hard to think about. But at this time, there was no music that you could really dance on a dance floor to in the way that we think Mm -hmm. about like club or house music now. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not a dancer type person. Like if I go out, I'm not, I know Jared, I think you're the same. We like yeah. hung out at all the sweet 16s and we didn't really dance. Like, right. I, it's, you know, okay. like what do you do yeah. with your hands? I don't have rhythm. I've been told that by right. multiple people. Like I just feel. Right, right, right. We dance on the upbeat. Yeah. Yes. I feel uncomfortable. But what I will say is like seeing other people dance too. I feel like there's a lot of like jumping now, like hands up. There's a lot of butt stuff happening, you know? Which, I'm still like, what is happening? What are we doing? Nothing has changed. Right, exactly. But basically, it's like rhythmic beats, right? Like it's something that you can kind of move in a rhythmic way to. And so that's kind of what we see now. It's something that allows for like individual movement as well as like you can dance Mm -hmm. sort of or like grind alongside someone. Like you can Mm -hmm. dance with multiple people, with yourself, whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's my like how we, I think, think about club music or house music now but at the time this concept didn't really exist and disco was able to fill that niche so instead of the previous dance style where it was very much partner centered um so it was either slow dancing where like you had to have a partner and specifically like your boyfriend or girlfriend Or it just, it was hard to dance alone, even if it wasn't slow music. It was really hard. Like if we think about like the Charleston even or other types of like line dancing and stuff, even those are group dances, but it's not, you're not expressing yourself in any way. Right. So disco added this element because it's kind of the foundation of the club music we see today. You could dance with multiple partners if you wanted. You could move around a floor and dance with a person next to you, dance with a stranger across the room. You could switch partners more frequently. You didn't need to go dancing with your straight partner, with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And that was really important because at the time of the sort of inception of disco, the ban on two men dancing together was still in effect and it was lifted Mm -hmm. during this time but during the creation it was still in place and so it was really important to kind of make music that didn't require a partner because you couldn't go out and just dance with someone and so disco kind of was able to do that along with being fun it kind of created 
like the environment was there, right? Where people could just gather. And then the music filled that where now you could just gather and also have fun and dance and not have to worry about these slow partner dances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who wants to be the person without a partner or being the person dancing alone? Yeah. It's like there's, yeah, there's no space for you at that point there. Right. So they needed to, right, find something that could. And like, I know these dances were not, what immediately preceded disco but i just keep thinking sure. in my head about like old style mm-hmm. movies you see them dancing like those weird partner like dances at the gym. yeah like those those weird partner dances where you have to like you start with one partner like if you're waltzing or whatever and you kind of switch partners but you'll have one partner and like you're all doing the same dance and you have to know the steps like right this isn't the bridgerton ball it's, yeah thank you're you not yeah <laughs> right 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 and so people were loving this element right because that that was lame and nobody wanted to do that this freed from the shackles of group dancing right (laughs) so this music instead was easy to move to by yourself or with someone else it was exciting and mainly it was all those things because it sampled music from artists and music that people already liked so a lot of people when they came up in the in the disco kind of industry or genre, they eventually created their own music. But the origins of disco were people noticing what songs other people liked and then would like keep the beat of that song or like loop a certain part of the song and just kind of create these like mashups of already popular music. So it was like rock music. It was blues music. It was jazz. It wasn't in opposition to those things, as people commonly say. It was an inclusion of all of those elements of music in a way that people liked and had like a strong beat and a lot of instrumentals. Mm -hmm. So it changed the vibe of the songs that people already liked in a way that they could dance to them. Is this similar to like when Sylvester had his song you make me feel i believe it was where it was like a piano ballad and then they took it and sampled it and it was turned into an upbeat dance song right it's like where people already liked his song but they specifically produced it for the club and made it into this like movement this dance beat heavy song yeah exactly and so we see the same thing now that's exactly what they did with sylvester and we see the same thing now even with like radio edits or different type Mm -hmm. of edits but it's like taking a song that people maybe knew the words to or really liked or an artist or a genre of music again because like disco itself didn't really exist yet so it was building off of a genre of music to kind of create a different sound that was mainly Mm -hmm. focused on being able to move to gotcha gotcha it was meant to be like easy listening right it wasn't meant to be like what are these lyrics mean to me and I'm gonna like go drop acid and really think about this for a while it was like let's just go have fun right let's just dance so and and this makes sense right because I know there are songs for me at least I don't know about you that it's like I will listen to the song until I get past the first chorus because that's what I want to hear and then I skip the song do you do that no that is you don't psychotic behavior No, I'm like, oh, that uh, that's the part that I like. And then I move past it. You don't have a song where you're like, I only really like the bridge of that song. No, either I listen to a full song or I don't. Okay, I don't trust that answer. But anyway, I'm not alone in this. I know because that's kind of how the music was sampled. They would take specific pieces of songs and then add different beats or instrumentals to it. 
So at this point, disco's catching on and it's mm-hmm. becoming more unified. It's becoming its own really style or genre, but it's still underground, though becoming slightly more accessible than those rent parties and park gatherings we were talking about. I talk about it being slightly more accessible, though, because as much, even when they became popular, as disco and nightclubs offered a lot of marginalized people empowerment and space, early clubs and even the more popular ones like Studio 54 were incredibly exclusive. And that's something that I think sometimes we might forget, even those earlier clubs like I was talking about. So many of them were invite only or again, that kind of like frat party-esque where you had to know someone to get in. And so it makes sense why if we think about it, especially in the beginning, like it started off as a safety precaution. Like they didn't want a bunch of people knowing where this was for fear that it would be raided. But then as disco entered the mainstream, it kind of continued and got exponentially worse. So by the time we get to those clubs like Studio 54, they were super elite. People were getting turned away for just like not looking right, quote unquote. So that could be things like being too fat, not dressing in the correct style, um, not fitting the beauty standards of the specific club, which oftentimes then meant people of color specifically who created a lot of this movement were then being turned away. And people who presented too queer similarly created this music and were being turned away from their space. I mean, that's it's a total monopoly by white people of Mm -hmm. an art form and of, you know, like a celebration of of the music or, you know, the cell just celebration in general. It's like, white people completely take over and then exclude the very people that mm-hmm. brought it to white people. It's like you wrote my story for me because that was exactly what I was going to talk about next. We're so just... sorry, please do. No, that's okay. We're just really on the same wavelength right now. So just as you was saying, once disco kind of hit the mainstream now in the 70s, is actually when it starts to go downhill. Mm -hmm. So it was underground for a while, started gaining popularity, people caught on to this, but then white people caught on to it um, and really kind of messed everything up. Yeah, by way of Saturday Night Fever, they Mm -hmm. really took disco down. Yes. So Saturday Night Fever is a movie that launched John Travolta to fame and took mainly what was once a representation of black and queer liberation of joy and peace and love and all the like good hippie stuff that people were trying to continue through the 60s and just kind of made a story about like a depressing anti-gay like white dude Mm -hmm. with like elements of disco so like the music was really good the soundtrack which was filled with like Bee Gees music is still one of the top selling soundtracks But the movie at its core misrepresented the origins and the meaning of disco Mm -hmm. as an expression of people of color and queer people's like challenges and successes. And so it got really popular, which again, this is why we talk about representation matters, but intentional representation, right? So cool. Everybody knows about disco, but they don't really know about what disco is. And so now marginalized people thought disco was a space for them. But now more straight people are starting to go to these disco clubs and less queer people feel safe there or included or like they want to be there. Right. Also, what I think is interesting, so I've never seen Saturday Night Fever, but I didn't link this article. But um, in the You're Wrong About podcast, they talk about how 
the there was a news article that actually created the storyline for Saturday Night Fever and it was mm-hmm. faked. Like it wasn't a real right. sort of article or insight into disco right, like, right, culture. Right. right. And what's so interesting is in the movie and also in this article, they talk about very organized, almost line dancing style dancing at a disco. Everybody's kind of doing the same movement. And that's how you kind of could know now that that was a faked article because that's fundamentally opposed to what disco was. Right, the was. complete opposite of why mm-hmm. disco originated. Right. And so just like from the jump, from the beginning of Saturday Night Fever and mainstream involvement in disco, it was misrepresented. Mm-hmm. So now I want to backtrack a little bit because now we're sort of on the downswing of disco. Okay. So as we talked about, the rise of disco in the 1960s was during a very tumultuous time. There's a lot of stuff going on. Mm. So it's also accompanied by the rise of conservatism, especially social conservatism. So this concept combined with the resentment of stagnant radio DJs at the time and just general like homophobia, transphobia, racism, this led to the disco sucks movement. So what I found interesting about this, and Jared, maybe you know this. I don't. I didn't at the time. So this is a new fact. It's not a fun fact. But using the verb sucks as in like disco sucks or like mm-hmm. this drink sucks or whatever did not mean the same thing that the, the way that we use it today, right? So it, it was actually a pejorative. It was very intentionally used and negative as a homophobic mean it. Mm-hmm. So like if something sucked, it was like related specifically to gay men and right. was meant to be negative because it was related to gay men. It's like calling someone a cocksucker. Right. It's the same thing when right. men will say that to some like another guy or whatever, be like, oh, you're such a cocksucker. It's like, well, think about what you're saying. You're using a term that is specifically homophobic, but it's right. so normalized now that you don't even realize that that's what it means. It's the same exact thing. Yes, exactly. So I guess I never really thought about it with no, that. I didn't but either. So disco sucks was not just like it was it was a concerted movement right so it was an an entire movement that was very intentionally picking those so it was like yeah there were t-shirts there were magazine articles specific with this title because it was well known that this was a queer movement Mm. okay but yeah i love learning that stuff we say every day is bad right yeah no it's literally most of our language (laughs) so much of our colloquial terms colloquialisms yeah Mm -hmm. rooted in horrible so And it, it was kind of very similar to how today we see a really huge spike in men's rights activists and Blue Lives Matter folks as essentially a rebuttal to modern feminists and then Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. movements. So it was this almost immediate response to a violation or what people thought was a violation of traditional masculinity and quote, American ideals. Hmm. They saw those things being upended by the power that disco held. So people felt like they could be open. Going back to that quote earlier, people, especially queer people, didn't feel like they had to hide. Right. In disco spaces, people really felt like they could be whoever they wanted to be and they weren't keeping that a secret. There were a lot of interracial relationships because this was the only place people felt like they could display things like that. Mm -hmm. And so this was, to a lot of conservative folks, a complete abhorrence of all that they Mm -hmm. valued. 
<laughs> because it was like queer people enjoying how themselves. How dare they? How dare they feel yeah. empowered? How dare they feel comfortable in their how own dare skin? They? Yes, it's awful. Like they just have too much power. They have too much. Men can dance with men now. Like Ugh. I can't stand that. Disgusting. I will not even question in about 10 years the concept of Reaganomics, but like my brain, it was going to explode if I see two men kissing. Oh God. Like I can't handle it. So all of these very complicated sort of social issues culminated very obviously in a way, in a very visual way Mm -hmm. in Disco Demolition Night, which took place on July 12th, 1979 in Chicago, Illinois. So as we mentioned, the steady decline of disco was already happening, which spoiler alert, capitalism was partly involved in that. Mm. But... Though this decline was happening, Disco Demolition Night was kind of the most visual image people have when they think of like the one night Mm -hmm. or what people think of as, quote, the night that disco died. This is usually what the association is. It's to Disco Demolition Night. The night that disco died is apparently in the Chicago White Sox Stadium, which... Baseball? Yeah. What does does baseball have to do with disco oh well don't worry we'll get into it okay perfect we will but if you can think of a quintessential american thing mm-hmm. it's baseball right it's the and as we're talking opposite about of the threat right. of disco correct gotcha. and the demographics of people who enjoy baseball mm. are like especially at this time are likely far different than the demographics <laughs> of people who enjoy disco sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so so in the same way maybe baseball stadium was a safe place for all those bigots Mm, right because they need the space right they do Mm -hmm. so we're in 1979 now disco has been popular for about eight years and mainstream for two because saturday night fever came out in 1977 okay so queer people have already felt less included in disco spaces the music has changed so if you listen to disco music from like the late 60s and then listen again in Mm -hmm. 1979 or even from 1977 the music you can see a noticeable change but still radio stations are playing disco non-stop many radio stations have begun to exclusively play disco music because since it became mainstream in 1977 Mm -hmm. and everybody was like saturday night fever this is amazing radio stations realized they could make a lot of money Mm, from this of course so they were like right so that's where the capitalism comes in so they were like let's just play disco constantly Mm -hmm. and then of course it got really annoying (laughs) i mean there's a reason why like cops or like the army will play annoying songs on repeat Mm -hmm. when there's like someone barricading themselves as a form of torture yeah 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 yeah. so i mean effectively they're doing that to the entire country inadvertently right so they're like yes we can make all of this money now because years ago disco wasn't popular and also people weren't signed to record labels like these were people just mixing music on their own they weren't producing their own music for a label but now they are and so Radio stations are like, this is our cash cow, right? So on top of now, just like the oversaturation of disco music that made people who maybe once previously enjoyed it think twice about it, Mm -hmm. it also drove a lot of radio DJs out of the industry. Because if you were like a rock DJ and your Uh. station was a rock station and they were like, just kidding, rock is out, disco's in, 
you went out with it. Oh, God. So one of those DJs was Steve Dahl. And he was a 24-year-old from Chicago who lost his job when his radio station adopted the same like all disco all the time format. Mm -hmm. So coincidentally, this is how baseball comes in. Baseball teams and stadiums at this time needed a way to get people in seats. Like things were just like bleak Mm -hmm. for baseball at this time. They were doing all of these gimmicks to try to just like get people into the stadium. And a lot of times they involved like giveaways and things like that. Which our giveaway is not a gimmick, by the way. No, it's genuine. (laughs) So enter it. Yes. So Dahl, the former radio DJ, approached Uh the White Sox, someone from the organization or the stadium manager, about having a disco demolition night as one of this Ah, these discount gimmicks. So essentially, patrons would get discounted tickets if they brought in a disco record, which would be destroyed. I find this so funny. And it gives me the same energy as those people who burned their Nike shoes when they saw an ad, a Nike ad with Colin Kaepernick in it. Like, uh-huh. you already bought the thing. Right. Um, you already gave them your money. They don't really care what you do with it afterwards. So sure. you just spent the money on a disco record because presumably you didn't have one to right. just destroy it. Right, you hated it that it. much already. You had to go get one. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so you, right, so you went out and bought one. You spent money to just destroy it later on for like a discounted baseball ticket. <laughs> but like, cool. A ton of people showed up to destroy their personal property just like in the name of, for a lot of people, racism and homophobia. So... I do want to say that probably not everyone who came to the baseball game that night or brought a record was doing it because of the very clear association to people of color and queer people. Sure. But many of them were. Knew what they were Because it wasn't a hidden thing. Yeah, exactly. Some people maybe really did just they were upset they lost their jobs or they really did think it was destroying rock and roll. But I think a lot of it was definitely rooted in that racism and homophobia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this night, there's a ton of people. It actually gets super out of hand, turning into a complete riot, which is rare at baseball games, where players were, like, detailed that they were fearing for their lives. Oh, my God. So because a pile of, like, crates of records were blown up, and if you've ever even touched blown a record, up. yes, blown up, exploded. What? So just like you were yelling fire, like uh-huh. this was this was literally such a like shards of records, which oh are ha- like hard, yeah, are flying all over the place. People are launching their records at players, like in the middle of a game. They're just like launching at the baseball player. Yes, that's exactly. They're throwing their records (laughs) at the players. Now, the players have no involvement in this. They're just like, I'm trying to play a baseball game. You're supposed to be watching me play a baseball game. Right, right, right. So they had to stop the game multiple times because everyone's just like hurling shit at them. Okay. There's this like energy from the crowd and again no matter what the reason people were there for whether it was racism and homophobia it was clear that disco was unwelcome and at this point unsafe our good friend anita bryant makes another Mm. appearance this Mm -hmm. week and joins in the backlash and so at this point disco's mainstream the hatred of disco is mainstream so everyone was sort of resigned to the fact that disco had to like at least sort of take a hiatus Mm -hmm. it was now mainly straight and white, the original message and intention was lost and queer people were being targeted at this point. So 
With this message being heard, disco went back underground only to emerge later as what we now think of as house music, EDM, mm. like Dua Lipa music is like really has its roots in disco and lots of other popular music we listen to today. The biggest takeaway I have is that obviously disco isn't lame, which somehow is what everyone made it out to be. Like Mm -hmm. that's the reason disco ended was because it's for like your embarrassing dad. But that's not what it was. If you listen to disco music, which I encourage you to do after this, it's amazing. Right. So Arwa Hader writes, disco quote, gave a powerful platform to artists of color who were often female or gay. And perhaps that's why it attracted such hostility, unquote. So wrapping up, there are a lot of folks I read about that helped create and shape the disco era, and I was not able to talk about them all because I've already been talking for 50 minutes. Um, And if they were all were mentioned, their stories definitely would not have gotten enough in-depth coverage. So I just want to list you briefly some people I found especially fascinating, including some popular disco bands and singers, if you want to check them out, and I encourage you to do so. The story really could have been a lot longer, but I wanted to spare that for you. So the least you could do is listen to some of these. So artists like Gloria Gaynor, Donna Summer, Chic, Frankie Knuckles, David Mancuso, Nikki Ciano, Larry Levin, Maurice White, Thelma Houston, and Oliver Coquelin. Coquelin? It looks French. I'm sorry, Oliver. I don't speak French very well. No, we've established that. We really have. So that was disco. So sad that white people ruined. We ruin everything and we ruin something really cool and really great again. Again. Yeah. And- I was writing this and I was like, I'm so excited to talk about disco and I'm literally the person who like co opt <laughs> Like right, I'm right, sitting right. here as a white straight woman being like, disco, I love it. Right. <laughs> but at and least like, you I'm have the, the... Per- I'm the person. <laughs> but you know the background and you know the history and mm. I feel like you have a little bit yes. more respect for its roots than most people have and did. I do. I do really hope so because I, I think disco is really very magical. If you listen to it, I think it can bring you like a lot of joy. It really is easy listening. Mm -hmm. It's very fun. And for those of us who are stuck in their eighth grade graduation dance moves, disco like gives you a lot of opportunity to just like dance in a way that doesn't feel weird. Like you can really own it. Just move the body. Yeah. Yeah, Just get out there. Get away from the sides of the dance floor and get into the middle Mm. of it and just really, really just groove and shake and boogie (laughs) till the dawn. Yep. There you go. You got it. (laughs) Well, thank you. That was great. Uh, Chicago White Sox, you better say you're sorry and (laughs) you better do something reparations for disco <laughs> yes and everybody take action go listen i don't to know some if the disco. white Sox still exist but if you do <laughs> we're gonna boycott you <laughs> <laughs> oh well thanks Thank you again, Rachel, for that awesome story about disco and the unfortunate night that disco mm died was demolished yeah it's not disco no disco will never die disco will not die but thank you for listening of course and this week i have been feeling very anti-establishment i've Mm. been feeling very apathetic lately people have just not been doing it for me 
And so, you know, sometimes you just gotta be gay and do crime. So this week, I'm going to be talking to you about the queer origins of piracy. That's right. I'm talking to you about queer maritime pirates, specifically in the golden age of piracy. Oh, I love it. And you know what this reminds me of? What? The scene in Heartstopper where, <laughs> where where Nick is watching the Pirates of the Caribbean and it, like realizes that he's into both um um what's her name? And what's his face? Yeah, Orlando yeah. Bloom and um I keep wanting to say Natalie Portman, but it's Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that yeah. reminds me. But oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> All right. So I'm just gonna give you I'll give it a little disclaimer before we okay. get into that. The sources that I use this week are the History is Gay podcast's first episode titled Were Some Pirates Poofters? Straw Hut Media's Pride podcast episode titled A History of Queer Pirates with Rebecca Simon. The Incredible True History of Gay Pirates and Their Strangely Modern World by Tris Reed Smith for Gay Star News. Inside Modelitage, The Same-Sex Partnerships Between Colonial-Era Pirates by Andrew Milne for AllThat'sInteresting.com, The Golden Age of Piracy for Royal Museums Greenwich, and a thesis from Nicole Keegan at my alma mater, Loyola Marymount University, called Men and Modelitage, Sexuality and Same-Sex Relationships with Homeosocial Structures in the Golden Age of Piracy, 1640 to 1720. And then I also like dipped my toe into an article called Gay Pirates, an Explanation to the Frilly Shirts by Stella Sainsbury. I love it. Your source, so good today. Also, congrats, Nicole. You sound very smart. And just a little disclaimer, today's going to be less of a story as I usually do, but more of a general or brief history of piracy. Mm. This is something that I genuinely am going to dive so much deeper into the waters of, but I'm really excited to introduce you into the world of pirates. And yes. if anyone is interested in kind of the individual pirates I touch upon, let me know. I would be more than willing to do an entire episode dedicated to one pirate rather than the whole concept. So hit us up, let us know, um, and we'll go from there. Please do, because this isn't a story. It's a vibe. But we can we can do a story if you so want one. If you so choose. Yes. So I started this um, topic with a definition. Ooh, classic, like um, your first essay type stuff, right? What yeah. is As a spoon? Merriam-Webster yes. dictionary defines. <laughs> <laughs> but for those who don't know, piracy is an act of robbery or criminal violence by ship or boat-borne attackers, typically upon another ship or a coastal area, typically with the goal of stealing cargo or other valuable goods. I mean, stereotypically, they say ahoy, they make people <laughs> walk a plank, mm. X marks the spot, and all of that good stuff. Today, though, I want to focus on the Golden Age of Piracy, which is the period of about 1650 to 1726. There were three types of pirates. Corsairs, who operated in the Mediterranean Sea, buccaneers, who lived and operated in the Caribbean, and privateers, private ships that were operating during times of war that were granted letters of mark which allowed them to capture merchant vessels without being charged with piracy. 
a lot of these ships were operated or headed by people from Great Britain and Ireland. So it's a lot of white people who wanted to be out on the sea and free from life back home who acquired crew from the islands or the places they sailed around. Mm. I make this distinction because there's also an entire history of Chinese pirates in Southeast Asia, but I do not know their queer history. Maybe I'll cover that one day, but it's just those are also, that's like the second main group of pirates that I know nothing about. Okay. (laughs) And so these white British and Irish pirates would be folks who one day would pick up for one reason or another, find a ship, and likely work their way up the ladder until they ran a ship of their own. And this isn't to say that there aren't people of color on these ships. There, like, a million percent are. But it's rare that we see, from my research, a captain of color. And some, a good amount, of pirates are engaged in slave trading, So there is kind of a murky history there, but it does seem that a lot of ships have diverse crews because of the region of activity. I'm going to focus a lot on these English and British pirates in the Caribbean. And so I think just because of where they're sailing around and the people they're engaging with, we're going to see more of a diverse crew. Mm-hmm. But again, just just have that in the back of your mind that slave trading is big with the pirates. It's right. It's and there's a lot happening. Right. So it's probably likely a lot of them engaged in some way in the slave trade oh, God, or in yeah. like chattel slavery. And then yes. also an important distinction of like, even if they did have people of color on their crew, it probably wasn't like the most autonomous, oh, like right. free agency type decision. Right. Right. So that all being out there, I just. I didn't want to brush over that. That feels like a very important part of piracy (laughs) that I did want to address. Thank you. The modern and popular conceptions of pirates that we have today, so think Pirates of the Caribbean, The Goonies, The Princess Bride, Hook, Treasure Planet, they all come from one book from 1724 called A General History of Pirates, which contains basically just biography after biography of contemporary pirates. While heavily influential, this source is a bit controversial as it's written by someone under the potential pseudonym Captain Charles Johnson. It's believed by many scholars that this author could be Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe, which tells the first person quote unquote true story of an Englishman who sets sail on a dangerous sea voyage. It's a potential that this book of biographies is not accurate, historically accurate. It may have been written after these pirates were alive. But yeah. either way, the the general history of pirates catalogs some names that you might actually recognize, such as Anne Bonny, Bartholomew Roberts, Blackbeard, Calico Jack Rackham, Charles Vane, John Gow, Mary Reed, and Steed Bonnet. Pirates are so cool. Truly. Like, not obviously not the ones we were just talking, mentioning, but just like the concept of pirates and the fact that maybe you'll talk about this. Like, they were very early democratic systems. Like, they just are cool. Right. And I'm not real. I truly only am really focusing on the queerness of pirates. Even cooler. But yeah, these people, besides the slave trading, did a lot of like badass cool things. Yes, and maybe you'll talk about this too, but it really does remind me too when we talk about the queerness of pirates of the episode, first episode of Arrested Development, where um, 
don't. Tobias Funke accidentally mistakes a bunch of gay (laughs) activists as pirates and he's wearing like a blousey piratey shirt and joins them thinking, yeah, thinking that it's a pirate themed event. (laughs) Speaking of TV, (laughs) the last name that I mentioned, Steed Bonnet. Mm-hmm. also known as the gentleman pirate might sound familiar to you the the listenership if you watch hbo's our flag means death mm. so the book is criticized for maybe being a bit embellished giving these pirates sort of a mythical status but they're the biographies of real pirates so you and i are going to take this as a primary source and nobody can stop us okay and so semi-spoiler alert for the show our flag means death going back to it but if you've watched it you'll know that it's actually a queer love story between steed bonnet and blackbeard Mm. who is taika watiti oh see i really want to watch it but i'm okay that doesn't spoil it that makes me want to watch it more yeah exactly and i've only watched a handful of episodes so far but while i was watching it definitely got me thinking about queer pirates and if they really existed or if this show too was kind of an embellishment because when you think of pirates or when I think of pirates, I often conjure an image of a hypermasculine, like ready to fight and kill, like raging full of testosterone man, like pretty much the opposite of the flamboyant Captain Jack Sparrow. Mm-hmm. And so I did a little research for this specifically. And what I found is that while a lot of historians classically will say, no, there's no evidence that pirates were queer, there's a lot of people that say, yes. Of course, queer pirates existed. Of course, right. relations between same the same gender was accepted and almost encouraged on the open seas. So let's talk about it. So why did pirates become pirates? I think there's a lot of reason dependent on the time period that you're talking about. So before this golden age of piracy, as the hosts of the History is Gay podcast put it, The piracy of the 16th century is largely for monetary reasons. These pirates have families back home and they were pirating to be able to financially support them. Mm -hmm. But by the time we get to the golden age of piracy, a shift happens where we begin kind of seeing pirate almost less of an occupation and more of a lifestyle. Mm, It's a vibe. It's a vibe. (laughs) And the freedom from England and Ireland's norms is a strong pull to life on the open sea. Mm -hmm. and pirates of the golden age a lot of the time are kind of the societal rejects or outcasts who don't fit into you know standard society yeah they're the emo kids right people with no families Mm -hmm. queer people sometimes people of color just anyone on the fringes looking to escape the oppressive and expectant lifestyles that they would have on land Mm -hmm. and so these people would join pirate ships where everyone is different but accepted. There's no race or class or nationality that requires you to be a pirate. All of these categorizations on a pirate ship sort of get tossed aside. So it's like these things that on land restrict you from becoming wealthy or noble or, you know, whatever, don't stop you from doing whatever you want to on a pirate ship. What's more important is your skill what you bring to the team and how you can help them succeed in being you know, kind of the best pirates you can be. Right. Like truly about, like, a meritocracy, morale. like Absolutely. rather than what the supposed systems were in other places, piracy right. was like truly you're earning your place somewhere. Absolutely. And so queerness and the open seas 
also have a long-standing history. Plenty of young men who joined merchant and navy ships, so not even pirate ships, engaged in sexual relationships with other men. And hot take, it's the exact same thing you see nowadays with men in the army. And I'm sorry if this is a shock to you, but there is plenty of gay sex happening in the United States Army, especially with men who have girlfriends and wives back home. Mm -hmm. So... Sodomy, or as the British called it, buggery, was illegal in the Navy, and so some of the men caught engaging in sexual acts with another man were hanged or lashed. But then, when a pirate ship would recruit these men from merchant and military ships after taking over them, some of these men who were already having sex with other men kind of find a more accepting or at least a more mm-hmm. tolerated place to exist. So they would join the pirates and almost find that this new life is actually kind of a benefit to them. Right. They were joining for other reasons and then realized the perk sort of. Right. They're like, oh, I can kind of do what I want here. Right. Right. Like as long as I'm do- serving my role on the ship, nobody kind of cares about what you're doing. Right. I'm not going to get hanged. I'm not going to get killed, whatever, you know, because of this. And there are some historians who call this situational homosexuality, which meaning like if a bunch of men, you know, in the army, right, if they didn't, if they weren't on a base, they most likely would not be having sex with other men. That's not to say that they're not bi or they're not, you know, some sort of queer, but it's saying because there's a lack of women because they're in close right. The environmental factors. Right. They right. are going to have sex with other men. That's just, right. you know, when, so when people are out on the open sea, when they're on a naval ship and there's nobody else and they're out there for months, it's like they are going to have sex with right. other men. So it right. is they're, kind of just. If, if they do have attraction to other men, it's more likely it would manifest at a time when they're surrounded by other men rather than like trying to conform to, well, I also like women or maybe I don't, right. but. Right. I if women are around, it's more reasonable for me to be having sex with women than it is men. Right, right. Okay. And so when they come to this pirate ship, they're like, "Well, I don't really have to fight this anymore. I don't. It's. Right. It, I can be in a, a situational homosexual relationship, and it's whatever. Right? right. Like it's fine. That's what it is. And everyone's like, like, "Cool, whatever." It was on the DL. It was on the down low. It wasn't you right. know like some big like advertising like come be a pirate you get to be gay right you know gay pirate but I also I also feel like if the reason a lot of people are joining something like this is for like their freedom or autonomy to break away from whatever it is that they don't like about systems of government or whatever then like you might be a little more willing to be like yeah sure like yeah, we can understand that like we're more free sexually or right. socially or whatever right. In the case of the buccaneers, so the pirates of the the Caribbean, many men engage in the practice known as matelotage, a same-sex civil union between two pirates. And this is kind of where we get the word mate or like matey from, matelotage. And it's sort of like the purpose of marriage nowadays. So it's where two men kind of engage in a contract, sometimes written, but most times verbal, agreeing that either could inherit the other's share of fortune upon their death. So the practice of matelotage began maybe as a sort of economic partnership, almost an informal will, which established the solidarity and commonality of interests and of goods between each man and his matelot, his mate. Mm-hmm. 
And so some have seen this practice kind of to be parallel to pederasty in ancient Greece. So the relationship of an older man, a mentor with a younger man, a mentee. So a young pirate with an experienced pirate, a sort of trade for protection and respectability for sex or other Mm -hmm. favors. But in cases like John Swan and Robert Culliford, pirates in the Indian Ocean during the late 17th century, their union, which was documented, shows that the two men were seen as quote-unquote great consorts who lived together, meaning Mm. historically really good friends, which I take to mean (laughs) lovers and partners. And their relationship through their matelotage has a sort of depth and connection that these men just don't have with other fellow pirates and you know it's so interesting because i feel like marriage like a a typical marriage for the time between a man and a woman was also more of an economic arrangement like i don't think there were many love marriages really happening like you were getting married because you really loved or cared about someone i really do imagine right that it was sort of this financial or or familial like you got married to have children or to secure economic stability whatever the case may be so the fact that that this extended to male couples but also that the couples were demonstrating that their relationship extended beyond that economic capacity leads me to further believe like you were saying they were historically really good friends because most relationships were an economic partnership they weren't all like we really enjoy being around each other so the fact that these two men did leads me to believe that it was something more than that Oh, and these two men apparently even ran away to live together in Madagascar, leaving behind their days of pillaging and pirating. Right. After a few years, they split up and Robert takes a piracy once more. He's captured not long after, but escapes the death penalty. And it's like after that, the two men never see each other again. But Mm. while they're together, like they... What a story. Yeah, they they really... They had a union that was more than Mm -hmm. just like co-workers on a ship yeah (laughs) and so the practice begins to evolve more than economic agreements bringing romantic interests and feelings into the equation and it becomes a pretty standard practice during this golden age of piracy the friendships and bonds between these men out at sea granted them security and companionship that they couldn't freely have at home Mm -hmm. some men involved with a mate had wives and families at home but felt like they had more of a connection with a fellow pirate that they could never have with those on land Mm -hmm. so they are leading these heteronormative lives but in this structure of being on a pirate ship they don't have to there's not these expectations on them to financially you know support the entire family it's just like it takes away society's expectations and lets them live right just more of a free open life And it's probably easier to develop an emotional connection with someone you're able to be vulnerable in front of. So like if your arrangement with your wife or your family is to provide finances and work and all of those things, you probably are not as emotionally connected or able to be vulnerable in front of them, especially in like the 1700s. Which is So you're able to do that probably on a pirate ship with a bunch of other people who can relate to your experience. Which is so fucking funny to me. Like you're pirates are emotionally available and like open and like out on the open like that's not at all what we expect and think of right. pirates as and it's like these men like you're saying truly are like 
opening up and becoming just like better men almost i guess you could say like i don't want to like idolize them because they did shitty thing but like it's an on the seas summer camp like think about the relationships you formed at summer camp that's what is happening one thousand and it's crazy because partners would even go as far as taking punishments on each other's behalf they would fight as a team and die together in a lot of cases and if not always sexual, it definitely was a more substantial connection than just like a teammate or like I was saying, like a work friend. Mm-hmm. On one occasion, on the island of Tortuga in the Caribbean, a port city for buccaneers, there were so many of these Madelatage partners, these male-male relationships, that the government was basically like, there, there's too many queer men on this island. And it was actually mainly men on this island. Like there's rarely a woman spotted <laughs> on this island. And so... There's so many men engaging in sex, there's not enough women, and it's becoming a problem. So in 1645, the French government is like, if we ship a bunch of female sex workers to this island, their presence will cure the gayness of these pirates, right? And so you would think that if these relationships between pirates truly were just because that's all they had access to, right? They only had access to men, so they're resorting to that. You would think, Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. The women's presence would make the men stop and they would go right for these women. They would not be male-male relationships. But instead, when the women get to the island, the pirates see it more as like a maybe two's a crowd and three's a party kind of situation. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it's just orgies. Right, and they begin forming love triangles and having just, like, threesomes with their Madelatage partner. So they're like, me and my... We saw you from across the bar and we really <laughs> like your vibe. Like, they, it's just like these two men yeah. being like, let's just bring in a third. Like, why fucking not? So it's it's not like these that men feels are being, right. <laughs> right. It's not these men being cured of anything. It's almost like a massive accidental bisexual awakening island party. Right. It's just like everybody's kind of just like, we're like, yeah, we're here now. They sent us here to have right. sex with you. So like, I guess, yeah, let's just have sex. Why fucking not? Like literally. And okay, I'm rambling about Madelatage, but no, it was there and it was real. And while we don't know the extent of Madelatage and how many people the practice reached, we also know that there was this acceptance of queerness because Mm -hmm. of the lack of restrictions of queerness in pirate codes, which we have plenty of, Mm -hmm. right? We have these codes of conducts from various pirate ships, and we often don't really see a direct restriction of same-sex relationship nor any punishment associated with them, such as in the British Navy. There are even some ships, such as Blackbeard, whose code essentially outlaws women and children, and therefore the act of sex with a woman or pregnancy on board because... Right, that's not allowed. Right, it's not permitted. And so the main thought behind this is, if there aren't any women, there's less of a distraction to men who might actually favor women so it's better to have the men be with other men on board keeping it contained and keeping it focused so it's almost like the captains are a matchmaker being like listen (laughs) you don't need women that they're just a distraction just you've got everything you need right here (laughs) exactly keep it within the bro bros before hoes yeah that's it right and so it feels like because we know madelatage exists and they're are documented cases of it and because there's mainly no direct opposition to this queerness 
that would therefore mean that there was at least some kind of acceptance or tolerance of homosexuality within Buccaneers, at least. The one couple we actually have a lot of information on out of all queer pirate couples is that of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, two of the only recorded female pirates of this mm. time who both disguised themselves as men when they joined Calico Jack Rackham's crew. Both were interestingly enough raised as boys or as tomboys while growing up and both as illegitimate children, and they found themselves being called to the pirate life. Mm. Anne Bonnie and Jack Rackham actually were lovers. Okay. And Anne wore men's clothing, although didn't necessarily disguise herself as a man to work on the pirate ship. Many knew that Anne was a woman and that she and Jack Rackham were romantically entwined. And as she did in childhood, Anne often went by Andy. But then Mary Reed, who was disguised as Mark Reed to get work at sea, was on a ship that was captured by Jack Rackham, and she decides basically to join his crew. Anne and Mary have this instant attraction to each other, and they fall deeply in love, thinking that the other one is a man. And they basically <laughs> reveal the secret to each other that they're both women. They, like, she's the man it. They, like, reveal by exposing <laughs> their breasts and, like, shout, being like, right. I am a woman. And they're just like... Oh, okay, cool, great. Oh, and they begin having this romantic jinx. and likely sexual <laughs> relationship. Yeah, they're like, jinx, you owe me a soda. And so Jack Rackham becomes incredibly jealous of Reed thinking that Mary is Mark and wants to kill Mary because she seems so enamored with Anne. And then Jack Rackham apparently walks in on Anne and Mary. And while it's not explicit, it's easily inferred that they're about to have sex or they're just having had sex. And Jack sees Mary's breasts, realizing that she's a woman. And any anger that he has against Mark Reed sort of dissolves and they become this little love triangle. Together, they steal ships and recruit crew members, amassing plenty of treasures and becoming incredibly wanted fugitives. And eventually they're captured and Jack Rackham is hanged. But the two women escape execution as both had been pregnant. That is one of the most complicated love triangles slash like Bonnie and Clyde situation. That is so many things at once. Also, like sort of misogynist, like somehow misogynistic to be like, I'm getting cucked by Mark. I'm going to kill him. And then it's like, Mark is a woman. All good. That's hot. Let's have sex. <laughs> right. Like, it was the. That's a quick it was like change. Lesbian porn. <laughs> Of yeah, the golden age it was of like it was like oh, I'm somehow not jealous anymore because you're a woman. Which like I'm glad you didn't kill Mary. Um, sorry about your fate. Could bro, we but... speculate though that he was jealous about like Anne winning over Mark? Maybe maybe he was really into Mark and wanted Mark for himself. Oh, ooh, I love right? that I like story. To, yeah, I like to create little situationships in my mind. Yeah, I love that little fanfic, Jack Rackham yeah, exactly. fanfic. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to start that oh, right after we stop recording. I love it. There are also other various queer pirates, such as Pierre the Pansy Pirate, who, Ooh. according to the History is Gay podcast, ran a coffee shop, did hairdressing, and had a dressmaking shop. And Sounds while this lovely. seems like a bunch of queer stereotypes, a gay stereotypes, just one after another, I'm going to choose to believe that this man was real and really just loved doing all of these things and had a passion and just 
was the best pirate ever. Yeah, I really hope so, because otherwise that's fucked up. But if it's not, that sounds like a lovely way to live. <laughs> I, mean, I agree. There was also, as I said, Captain Bartholomew Roberts, who had an affair with a volunteer surgeon named George Wilson, who, after being separated for a few months, were absolutely smitten upon being reunited and both dressed in their best for the occasion. It's also noted that several witnesses were saying they were quite intimate on board with one another and basically had plans to blow up and quote-unquote go to hell together if they were captured by enemy ships. Oh, so like a suicide pact. A little bit. So all in all, while there isn't a ton of recorded evidence that details the extent of queerness that existed on the open seas, we know that there was enough to prove that it existed and it was allowed and accepted and in some cases encouraged. We have a lot to speculate about, but it seems likely enough that queerness and the open seas have a longstanding history that isn't entirely forgotten. And... While not every pirate was gay, I think it's safe to say that most had a taste for seamen that they couldn't just quite get enough of. Oh, I hated that you did that, but it was so good. Sorry, I mean, you I had, had to. to. You I had really to. had to. I had to. I appreciate you taking the risk. It was a Thank good you. one. I and it was it a good off. story. <laughs> it was a very good story. And it was really a lot of fun. Um, I was so yeah. excited to learn about it. It was really something I had no basis on before this. Me neither. Yeah, it was so, so interesting. I had a friend and an old roommate who made me watch Pirates of the Caribbean while we were in quarantine living together. Like, talks <laughs> about pirates all the time. Or, like, used to. Like, I was always like, what is her deal? And then I read all of this and I was like, yeah, I get it. I fucking love pirates. Yeah. You could really go down a rabbit hole of pirate stuff now. I think yeah. that that's maybe like the to. childhood queer like stuff is like horse girl material or like Greek mythology. But then the adult pirate. queer stuff is like pirates. Oh, let's get that started, matey. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. mm, little pirate stories. Well, we've already got yeah. your fanfic coming. Oh, so it's look coming out and it's coming it. hot. And read more. Of, I'm going to read more about pirates now. Yeah, go look it up. Go do it. I love it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in to episode 24 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about queerness in fringe places. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even being outshined by John Travolta a little bit more fun. This is a final reminder that our giveaway ends in two days, so be sure to check out our Instagram for all of the rules and apply if you're so inclined. Also, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't. And to see photos from this week's episode, you'll find them also on our Instagram at historicallyreally. And if you also feel so inclined, make sure to send us your personal stories. Maybe they're about camp, maybe they're not, to historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com or just DM us. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Bye.